may be seated. And good morning, I'm Paul Joyner, one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us, we're so thankful that you're here. You may be new to the Bible, just checking out um, the claims of Jesus. And so we've printed the text for our sermon on page 9 of your worship guide. If uh, you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to just grab one of those Bibles in the pew in front of you. Feel free to take it home with you. We would love for you to have God's Word in your house. We, uh, I was struck um, this morning um, in our confession of sin. These are words that I often work on earlier in the week. Um, just struck by this phrase that how often times we operate or I operate out of self-preservation and fear. It just seems to be so much the heart of what I find myself defaulting to. And I don't think I'm the only one. And it, as we saw in Second Kings, it's just not the heart of God. And as we'll see again in Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, our text in front of us today, it's just so not the heart of God. So Luke 10, chapter 10, verse 25. This is God's word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is God's word. The wisdom of man is like the flesh and like the beauty of the field. It fades and is easily blown over and dies. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. God, we ask you as we come to your word that you would draw near to us and speak into our lives. That we would leave here saying, God in his power has changed me. Comfort us where we need to be comforted. 
cut us where we need sin excised. Convict us all that Jesus might loom larger and more beautiful and believable than any other point in this week. If you would do this, we would leave here praising you all the more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think uh, we have a, what I call an ought-to problem, and our backs are breaking under the weight of it, and usually manifests itself this way. I say there's, there's two fraternal twins that kind of live together in our vocabulary. It's, if you just, and have you tried? Imagine a friend coming to you, and they're debilitating struggle with anxiety or, or poverty or whatever it is, depression, a family problem. They come to you with a problem, and you see them, and you hear them, and then you go into the other room, and you bring out your two friends of advice. If you just, and have you tried? Perhaps you've been in this situation where you've unburdened yourself to a friend. You're carrying around such a great weight that you're just not quite sure that you can go on with life itself. And you unburden yourself, bearing your heart to them, and they roll out their two friends. If you just, and it's fraternal twin, have you tried? And when you roll them out, your friend seems thankful that you are able to help. But in that moment, you realize that if you just and have you tried are just two monstrous beasts who bludgeon and burden your already weary friend. And you wonder... What's wrong? They don't seem to be getting any better. Just a little worse. Because now, along with the burden that they offered to help with, unburdened themselves on, you've just simply burdened them even more with these two now shackled monsters. If you just and have you tried. If you just did this... Have you tried that? For many of us, I think this is the way we think about Jesus and his kingdom. A friend who, when we come to him with our burdens, he sends us off with the two fraternal twins of, if you just and have you tried, shackled to us. But instead, he comes with a promise. Come to me, all you who are heavy burden, all you who are laboring, you're heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He's the friend who unburdens the burden. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But we are stuck on the treadmill of my worth is based on my performance and as I've said before, it constantly feels like someone's hitting the up button, the incline button, and the speed button on the same time, and we just can't quite get to the place of feeling like we are able to carry the weight that we've burdened ourselves with. My worth is based on my performance. And this is the kind of person who is standing in front of Jesus in Luke chapter 10. A lawyer, verse 25, stands up and asks Jesus a question. 
But the lawyer isn't really asking Jesus a question. Luke tells us that he stood up to put Jesus to the test. Now, again, as a side note, this is generally not a good idea. It never fares well for those who do this to Jesus. But oftentimes, this is the place where Jesus finds himself. And you see, the lawyer is showing off. Right? Don't, don't think of this as a modern-day lawyer. This isn't the beginning of a bad lawyer joke. A lawyer in the ancient Israel was a religious leader. He was a studied expert in the law of God. And you see what he's doing here. He's treating the law of God as a means of building his worth. And he's, he's put Jesus at his disposal. He's going to use Jesus. He's showing off. He's trying to take down Jesus, who at this time had already established himself as quite a teacher. And he's employing the lawyer as God's word to accomplish this. He's going to take down Jesus to establish his own worth, hitting the incline and the speed button on his own. Notice Jesus' patience here. He doesn't quite destroy him. As we'll see, he's actually attempting to liberate this man from ought to kind of living. And as Jesus often does, he turns the question back on the lawyer. What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the, the lawyer answers with a quite common summary of the day. Verse 27, he reaches back into the law of God and quotes from Leviticus 18 and 19. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He's, he's paraphrasing. He's got the right answers and the right information from the right source. He's using the law of God, but here's the thing. He's not embodying the heart of God. And so Jesus cuts him. That's right. Now, if that's what God requires, go and do it and you will live. In other words, there's life at the end of that road. If you want to follow that road, there's life on the end of that road, but the lawyer's not satisfying. So verse 29, desiring to justify himself, puts Jesus to the test again. Who is my neighbor? He's trying to catch him in a trap. And so Jesus again turns to the self-confident, self-righteous Lawyer, an expert in God's law, who had all of God's word and God's ways, but none of God's heart. And Jesus tells him a parable to answer his question, who is my neighbor? And he tells a parable about a man who's robbed, beaten, stripped naked, and left for dead while on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. Verse 30. And you get an idea of the scene that Jesus is setting. The road between Jerusalem and Jericho was a very treacherous road, but it was a short road, only about 17 miles long, but incredibly treacherous. Some called it in those days the trail of blood. You see, Jerusalem sits in the high country of Israel at about 3,000 feet above sea level. Jericho, on the other hand, sits on the shores of the Dead Sea, about 1,000 feet below sea level. And the terrain between the two, that 4,000 
thousand foot drop is rocky desert. And so as it drops in that span of 17 miles, it drops through rock infested desert. And you see what Jesus has done. He's setting the scene. He's, he's chosen a scene that was doubly dangerous. It was difficult trail and it's full of traps because robbers would often lay in waiting in the caves and the crevices of this dangerous journey, knowing that they could easily pick off the travelers. It's a tremendous metaphor for life in a fallen world. Jesus is often doing is he's just grabbing hold of them and, and tugging at their hearts and saying, you, you know this experience, this is kind of what you feel like every day as you're traveling through life. It's a difficult journey and there are dangers on every side, not just potential dangers, dangers everywhere. And so the man falls into danger. Verse 30 He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. There's the scene that's set. Someone in a vulnerable position falling prey to the vulnerabilities of life in this treacherous journey. And so who's going to come to their help? Who is the neighbor? Three men approach this beaten, naked, and almost dead man. And all three, if you caught this in our reading of it, all three see the man. Half dead, beaten, naked, stripped, but all three see very differently. First, the priest comes upon this man, the Priests were religious leaders. They were the keepers of the temple. It's reasonable that he would have avoided the man. His duties in the household of God were at stake. If this man was already dead, then to just simply touch him would have exempted him from his duties in the house of God for an entire week. It would have made him ceremonially unclean. He had to keep pure for the duties of God's household were at stake. And now... A second man passes by, a Levite. A Levite was a religious official too. Their job was to assist the priest. He too had important work to get at. He too had to be kept pure and clean so that he too could assist in the duties of God's household. Now it's easy to condemn these men. It's easy to condemn these men because they're in this parable. We know it well. But it's understandable, to be honest with you. They had important places to get to. And this was dangerous territory. They had important things to get at, and this was dangerous territory. There's no way at all to know if this man is hurt, dead, or simply setting a trap for the next weary traveler to come down this treacherous road. But you see what Jesus is accusing of them. Again, this is being told to a man who was tempting to ought himself in this world, to justify himself, to prove his worth. And Jesus is bringing down the hammer. If you want to call yourself righteous and of some worth in this world, then you have to care about the thing that God cares about. Remember, this discourse starts with a question, how do you inherit eternal life? And the answer, here's the heart of God. He ends the parable with the emphatic at the end in verse 37. 
go and do likewise. The one who showed mercy is the neighbor. Go and do likewise. And so a third man comes by. A Samaritan. That's a massive plot twist in this day and age. The Jews despised the Samaritans. In their minds, the Samaritans were, they were half-breed, religious half-breeds. They were sellouts who compromised, syncretized with the world. They were impure. Samaria sat in the middle of ancient Israel. An Israelite would leave, a faithful Israelite would leave the country. If he had to get to the north, he would leave out of the country to avoid even setting foot in Samaria because of its religious impurity, making the Samaritan a hero is scandalous. And Jesus intends it this way. The expectation is Jesus is telling the story. Sure, the religious elite were the bad guys, but what you expect is just a normal, ordinary, everyday Jew to become the hero. But no, Jesus does the unexpected, and he makes the outsider the hero. You would have heard an audible gasp in the room at this moment. You can almost hear Jesus telling the story today. The Presbyterian sees this man half dead and crosses on the side of the road. Baptist sees him, passes on the other side of the road, and then a man from Alabama. <laughs> you see what Jesus is doing? He's, he's shocking them awake. Because real love, he says, is measured by what love gives and gives up, and it's also measured by who it's given to. The Samaritan might have been ethnic, Ethnically impure, but he loved God with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength because he loved his needy neighbor. He saw differently. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, again, Remember that the priests and the Levites saw and passed by on the other side of the road. But when he saw him, he had compassion. We've seen this word already a number of times in our study this fall on the heart of God. When the prodigal returned home in Luke 15, just five chapters later, we see the exact same pattern In the father, he saw him, the younger son, as he's returning home to the threats of shame and being cast out that were facing him. The father saw him and had compassion and ran and embraced the younger son. And we said then, it's a deep image that's lost in translation. Literally in the original language, it literally says his bowels were moved. It invokes an image, a feeling so deep, so profound that your stomach begins to churn and ache. It's that kind of feeling, that emotion that demands an action. I've I've been so deeply moved in the bowels of my being that I have to act. I'm aching until their pain is relieved. That is how God sees the plight of sinners caught under the curse of sin. He's so 
deeply moved, that he's moved to action. I have to do something about this. It's the kind of love that simply cannot be complacent. He notices, he sees, and he sees with compassion, and he's moved to relieve and restore. That is the heart of God, and it's the heart that Jesus is pressing in this parable. Love enters, this kind of love enters into the risk. The Levite, the priest, passed by on the other side. Verse 34, but the Samaritan went to him. He's moved by seeing the plight. I've got to do something about this. Verse 34, he enters into the risk. He, he went to him. Again, this is dangerous territory. You can imagine. Imagine the scene. Uh, you're walking down the street with your family in tow in a dark alley, and you see the man groaning by the dumpster. It's reasonable to shuffle your family off to the other side. This is dangerous. But this kind of love enters into the risk. He went to him, verse 34 again. Love doesn't mind this kind of love. Love for neighbor, the heart of God and body doesn't mind this interruption. He went to him and he bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. This, most likely a man with this kind of resources that we'll see was a businessman. Certainly he had an important business meeting to get to. Probably why he's going down to Jericho, leaving one place of commerce for another place of commerce. And yet... He's interrupted and doesn't mind the interruption. He goes out of his way. This is what often does. Needs confront us. They confront our routine. They confront our plan. They require us to make adjustments to our lives when we cross upon him. That's why, partly why, certainly why the religious leaders kept on their way. They had things to go to, important places to get to. Things needy people don't come on schedules. Because their lives are often a chaotic wreck. Sometimes on their own doing, sometimes because of the doing of others, but they never come on schedules. And so he's interrupted. And then love secures healing at its own expense. He set him, took out his oil, he got his wine. Wine was probably antiseptic. He cleansed his wounds. Oil is a salve. He's bringing healing. And then not only does he expend these two precious commodities, he set him on his own animal. And the Samaritan walks while the man rides. The Samaritan gets to the end and he gives the innkeeper two denarii. A denarii is a day's wage. But in this context, it's even... More because it's estimated that a night and an inn in this time would have cost one thirty-second of a denarii. So you see what the Samaritan's doing. He's essentially paying for two months worth of board. He said, I've healed you, I've carried you, I've provided a home for you, and I will take, you will be taken care of in this. You've gone from treacherous to healed to included. Whatever is necessary, then he says, he's promised that he's going to return. Whatever this man needs, I'll pay for it. It's a lengthy, it's an expensive commitment. It's not one and done. It's not washing his hands. 
He establishes a relationship of healing and redemption. It's not just that he commits to spending more of his money. He binds himself to the man. And he says, whatever your needs are, now mine. These And the needs around, we just don't have to. It's, in the major cities in the United States, it's estimated that 31% of the children live below the poverty level. And for the family of four, the poverty level is $27,000. It's estimated that It's estimated that the poverty rate in Colombia is right around 29%. In our own backyard, Lewis County has a total population of 12,000. The TBI estimates within Lewis County, our next door neighbor, that 50, 50 young girls will be taken into sex trafficking every year. There are more than 7,000 children in the foster care system in the state of Tennessee. Just to give you a sense of proportion, that's half the Murray County school system. It's costly on many different levels. I can imagine at this point you're feeling the weight of the costs on your shoulders. We find it much easier to tweet about caring for the poor than actually care for the poor. We like the idea of compassion, but we're not willing to bear the cost of compassion. Because compassion always moves in. True compassion can't repost a meme about compassion on Instagram. True compassion is moved in your bowels to relieve at great cost. And it's exhausting. For decades, a Christian physician, David Hilfricker, led a medical ministry in Washington, D.C.'s inner city. He entered in. This is what he says. Perhaps the deepest pain involved in living among the poor is the juxtaposition of my own limitations and then the woundedness of theirs. There are so many battered people all over the place. Sometimes I wonder what the good Samaritan would have done if the road to Jericho had been littered with hundreds of men beaten by robbers. One part of me wants to respond every need I can, but there's another part that's unwilling perhaps even unable. And so numbness and cynicism sets in, and I suspect those are more often the products of frustrated compassion than evil intents. Probably many of you who've who've done just feel this. You've entered into the needs of people around you. You've been hurt, burned, burdened, and you can't carry the weight anymore. Compassion fatigue is a real thing, and I think he's right. That it's sometimes just the, just the result of being overwhelmed. Now, here's the thing. It is only the costly cross of Jesus Christ that can fuel this kind of compassion. We have to dwell in the heart of Christ or we'll never have any of the resources for this. And so let's remember the context of this parable. Because some of the weight that we just felt hearing what true love looks like to love one's neighbor with a heart of compassion. That weight, Jesus is putting that on you for a reason. Verse 29, again, context. This lawyer 
desiring to justify himself, says to Jesus, who's my neighbor? In other words, his his self-justification was an attempt to prove he inside of himself, I'm as faithful as I get. Look at all I was marching out, all of his accomplishments, trying to pat himself on the back. The law had not convicted him. He didn't feel its weight. If he would have, he would have responded when he heard his own words on his, his lips as he's quoting God's word. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. He would have, if at that point, if he would have heard those words, he would have fallen down and said, Oh my God, I have failed to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I've not loved my neighbor as myself. I am a hopeless man. Have mercy on me, Jesus. But he doesn't. He tries to one-up Jesus even more when conviction comes. And we're all bent this way. So to think so highly of ourselves, to think so highly of our righteousness, that we are caught in this trap of attempting to build our worth on our performance. And it's perhaps why we lay on our friends, if you just and have you tried. We're just trying to burden them further in that. And you see what Jesus is doing is he's having compassion even on this man to liberate him. Because in the hand of Jesus, the law of God in all of its glory and all of its wonder. He's stretching this man so much so into us that we reach out only to the hand of Jesus. So what self-justification does. It looks at my own needs and attempts to cover them with my own resources. At its deepest root, it's just seated in pride. And that when you try to love your neighbor in the well, and you're only digging into the well of my worth is based on my performance, you'll dip out a thimbleful and find that's gone dry real quick. And so he's breaking the man with, this is what your heart needs to be. By revealing what his heart is. Jesus is the only loving neighbor. He's the only one who loves in the way that says to the beating and to the hurting, not if you just and have you tried, but let me bear that burden on my shoulders. He takes upon himself the burden of carrying, triaging us, healing us, and then brings us into his father's house and says, I'll take care of you forevermore. And sin has ravaged us. It's left us beat up, bloodied, and dead on the side of the road. Sin has taken away all of our dignity, stripped us of all of our righteousness, enabled us to do nothing but operate of ourselves and for our own good. And that's when Jesus says to us, I I see you. You're like a dead man on the side of the road, stripped and naked. And the only thing that that I can do for you is enter in in compassion. And he takes out the antiseptic of his love and cleans out the wounds. And the oil of his mercy and 
brings healing. And the, the wealth of his righteousness. And he says, I've earned this for you, the riches. My father delights in me and I'm going to spend all of my riches on you. And so come into my house. I've borne the cost for your sin. Come into the inn of my father's house. There's plenty of room here. And what do we contribute? Nothing. We're just laying on the shoulders of his horse while he carries us in so that we can rest in him. In his all-sufficient provision, he has paid with his riches for our healing. And he didn't just pay for it with two days, but with his one and only life. And he didn't just put us into an inn. He says, welcome to my kingdom. My power is here. I'll give you my spirit. He brings us to spiritual health so that in his family we find healing and rest and restoration and hope forevermore. And he doesn't just leave us to ourselves and say, now the rest is up to you. But he promises future grace as well. He didn't just say, I did my work. You're on your own now. Go out. Good luck. I'm coming back. I will supply whatever you spend. You cannot outspend the resources that I've earned. Verse 35. Take care of him. Whatever you spend, I will repay when I come back. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The one who showed mercy. Now you should hear these words from the one who is your compassionate, loving neighbor. Now go and do likewise. And that's where the gospel comes in as both a new motivation and the necessary power to care with a heart of compassion to the weary and wounded. That's how the gospel changes us from, from slaves into children, from duty to choice. It just says, look, just before you ever look at the needy, look at how the compassionate Savior has loved you, cared for you, provided for you so that when you dip the thimble of your compassion into the deep well of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you'll find that you didn't even make a dent in that thing. For that well is deep and his love is whole and overflowing. Because if you're attempting to care for the hurting to build your own worth, you're going to quickly burn out. And then you're not even going to try anymore. Because the task is too daunting and too exhausting. But if you draw from the endless resources of God's grace. He can easily, more easily at least. It's never easy. It's always going to be costly. But at least more easily. I can dip into that and find my compassionate Savior. And his heart for me has with love given himself. To dip into the well of compassion 
and pour out the thimbles that you have to give for the weight of their healing is not on your shoulders, but on the shoulders of the compassionate Savior. Participate in his mission in the lives of the needy around you. It's not just the numbers that I enumerated earlier. It's the person sitting next to you in the pew. It's the person that you're married to at home. It's your children. There's not a single one of us who is not carrying around a heavier weight of burden than any of us can bear. Now let's pray to the Savior who bears our burdens and invites us to his table. Lord Jesus, your love is profound. You don't call us to do what you have not already done for us. We cannot exhaust your grace. We cannot outsend your love. You are always moved by our pain and suffering and are always working to relieve. You have unburdened us from the burden of having to perform. You've taken away the burden of your Father's wrath. You have given us the riches of your kingdom. Oh, may we operate out of your love for us and go and do likewise. We pray this, our Savior, in your great name. Amen.